This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome. This is the first in Emir Tashem, a series of podcasts on Shavuot of Moshe Feinstein related to the topic of Charlevery. If Charlevery literally means it is possible to clarify, uh, the question is whether a POSIC can make a decision based on the evidence at hand, even if more evidence could be obtained. Uh, that question itself can be nuanced. I want to point out one way at the outset. Uh, if Charlevery can refer either to the POSIC or to the case, in other words, it might mean that the POSIC, as right now, could go out and find more information before deciding the case, or it could be that the case itself could be clarified by more evidence which may emerge in the future, but the POSIC right now does not have the option of investigating to obtain that evidence. The POSIC could only wait. We're going to deal with the first kind of case where the POSIC has the option of obtaining more evidence, but I should note that Gemara Psachim Samach Bet uses the phrase in the other way. Um, okay, secondly, I want to point out that the order in which of these podcasts is going to be tracing the chronological order of Rav Moshe's Trivot, as opposed to trying to impose a conceptual order on them. We may learn something about Rav Moshe's thought by following his Trivot, as opposed to imposing our own order on them, although, of course, the order of the Trivot uh, may, you know, it could be that he wrote a Trivot, you know, long after he developed a certain idea, so I wouldn't be committed to that um, to that notion, and uh, although we're trying to avoid frameworks, there's no way to avoid presenting some of them at the outset. Uh, the first Shuvah, Eben Ezer uh, Aleph Memtet, 149, is dated Rosh Chodesh Sivan Tuf Reish Sam uh, Tzadi Hay, meaning 1935. Rav Moshe was 40 years old, and uh, still in Europe, rabbi of the city of Luban, uh, Lubin, under Stalin. Uh, my sense, for which I admit I don't have any real evidence, but it's a pet theory that I hope will be borne out by others, is that uh, many or most of Rav Moshe's most important uh, halachic ideas, really his creative contributions, were formed in uh, Lubin. Uh, since most of his Lubin Truvot were lost uh, in transit, you can read the introduction to Igrit Moshe Chedekhet, uh, I believe, um, we can't really know because we have lots of, there are lots of ideas that may have been developed in Lubin, but we have no written record of them until much later. Uh, this Truvot is written to Rav Kachmark of Slutsk, um, there are four Trivot in Igrat Moshe addressed to Rav Hachmark. The earliest is from 5684. That's 11 years before this one. But my suspicion, uh, again, no evidence, is that actually there was a, a far more active correspondence and that many of Rav Moshe's Trivot uh, to Rav Hachmark from that period have been lost. The summary that Rav Moshe provides of the question of Hachmark uh, asked him is straightforward. He asks, can we still in our day rely on a woman's testimony that her husband has died and thus allow her to remarry? We'll see from Rav Moshe's answer that Rav Hachmark actually asked a more detailed question. He, was ask- he wasn't asking theoretically. He was asking about a very concrete case with lots of details. Uh, but that Rav Moshe summarizes the question may tell us what he saw as the core issue at stake. Okay, some halachic background. Uh, the Mishnah Nivamos Kufyadal Mabet 114b discusses whether we allow a woman to remarry on the basis of her assertion that her husband has died when there is no evidence outside of her assertion uh, for or against the claim that, he, that her husband is dead. Uh, the Stam Mishnah and all the 
right? All the standard uh, codes codes of Jewish law say that we do in fact believe the woman under two conditions. A, there has to be shalom ba'olam, there has to be peace in the world. Uh, now, what does that mean? What that means is that we presume that if the husband were alive um, and he wanted to do one of two things, he wanted to either be together with his wife or to divorce her, there are no external circumstances in the world, such as a war leaving him abroad with no means of communication, that are preventing him either from coming back or from divorcing her. So that means that the most plausible uh, circumstance, for, uh, the most plausible explanation for us not hearing from him uh, is that he's dead. And so when the woman says that, that, um, that he's dead, she is um, actually confirming what would be the most likely uh, explanation of the circumstances. And B is that there's a shalom b'nehem, that there has to be peace among the couple. Because uh, if they were fighting, that might explain why it is that the husband just uh, went off and hasn't uh, informed her of anything and his wishes to leave her neither married nor divorced. Uh, the Gemara, Gemara has a very high standard for being will, right, for taking this into account, the possibility that the husband is in fact deliberately leaving his wife uh, we would call an aguna, right? Leaving his wife in a situation where she practically does not have a husband, and also she does not have the, the capacity to remarry. The Gemara standard is that the wife has to have previously claimed, on the basis of witnesses, that the husband divorced her, and that then those witnesses have to come forward and say, no, right? Actually, she's claiming that we witnessed the divorce, and we didn't. Right? That's a very high standard. Not so many women have made such a claim. And therefore, if you just took that standard as absolute, that's the only standard, that's the only ki- case in which we would disbelieve the woman. So then really, this in practice, there's only one standard, which is that uh, that in the absence of a really good external explanation for why the husband might be alive and still not communicating either to come back, that his intention to come back or his, or, um, his intention to divorce, um, right, that, that uh, we would believe the woman's claim that the husband is dead. Okay, now, what are the positive reasons for believing her? Uh, so the Gemara offers uh, two. Right? One possibility is that we believe this woman would not commit adultery willingly, so if she, uh, if she would not claim that her husband was dead unless she really believed it, because if, um, if her husband's alive, she understands she's still married, and she would not be willing to commit, uh, commit adultery. And the second possibility is that even if she's willing to commit adultery, she's not willing to be exposed uh, as an adulteress, and therefore, and if she says something false, then right, she falsely claims her husband is dead, so then she's running a very major risk that at some point the husband will turn up alive. And then she'll been, have been exposed as being an adulteress. So, right, two, so two possibilities. One is she really wouldn't commit adultery, and the other is even if she would be willing to commit adultery, she's not willing to have her adultery exposed. Each of these can be, um, can be, uh, could conceivably be framed in terms of impact on her children, Mamzi Root, as opposed to herself. But I have not seen that uh, explicitly raised. Ramosha certainly doesn't explicitly raise it, so we're going to assume that we can deal with just the consequences for her and not the consequences for her uh, for her children. Okay, so now, right, with right, with no, understanding that those two presumptions are key, that either that the woman would not willingly commit adultery or that she would not expose herself to the risk of being exposed as adulteress, and so now, uh, Hockmark's question is, is that still true? Now, why would it not still be true? So, um, I think the simplest way of framing it is the Soviet Union uh, is a new place. A, atheism is the law of the land, and the whole notion of marriage has been degraded, and therefore the presumption that a woman either would not commit adultery, why not? Adultery, you know, adultery under Jewish law as opposed to under secular law, why would we assume that women care so much about that? And secondly, 
regardless of their own position, right, if we're dealing just with the question of exposure, so there are social consequences of being exposed are much lower because so much less of Jewish society is focused around Jewish law. So maybe the ba- the grounds for believing the woman uh, are diminished that way. And on the other hand, uh, again, this is not explicit in the Shuvah, but I think that this is uh, reasonable. We could say that the Soviet Union is a place where, Stalin's Soviet Union is a place where people disappear to labor camps all the time. And they're also, right, maybe it's the equivalent of there not being peace in the world because people disappear and they might still be alive. We have no idea what's going on with them in um, in the Gulag. So there are reasonable grounds for Rav Hachmark's question to Rav Moshe saying that maybe the Gemara's presumption no longer uh, no longer stands and a woman's claim that her husband is dead should not be treated as uh, probative evidence. It should be treated as a self-interested claim that uh, that does not really affect the issue one way or the other. Uh, the counter to this is that um, the Gemara's general treatment of the question of whether we believe a claim that the husband is dead is influenced by the realization of the consequences, right, the consequences for the woman if husbands die, if we allow husbands to die and have set really high standards for verification, there will be lots of women who will be agunot. So that's where we say, Mishum iguna hekilu right, that the, the rabbis are lower standards dramatically in terms of standards of evidence for husbands' deaths because the consequences for women are too great. And right, there's an interplay between the really good reasons to to believe and the really good reasons not to believe. And we could point out that in um, regard to the second case of the Gulag, so Rabbi Hachmark is right that there are, um, right, in asking the question, because there are more grounds to not believe the woman, on the other hand, the consequences of choosing not to believe the woman could be uh, enormous. So that's the situation that Rav Moshe, um, Rav Moshe faces. From Moshe's response, we learned that the husband in question had disappeared um, 20 years earlier, and that the woman claims to have received a letter from her brother stating that the husband has died, but that Rabbi Hachmark, on his own, cannot verify either the authenticity of the letter from the brother. Uh, not clear whether he hasn't seen it or he can't prove it's from the he can't know it's from the brother, uh, or to the truth of its contents. He certainly has no way of knowing right whether the uh, even if it's from the brother, uh, and whether the brother should be more credible or less is a separate issue. Um, but in general, again, part of the way in which we lower the standards for preventing egun is that we allow testimony from relatives, and we allow hearsay testimony, etc. Uh, but um, right, so really, right, do we believe the woman about that the letter is from her brother, and do we believe, and assuming that we believe her that this is a letter from her brother, and her brother actually wrote this, uh, do we believe the claim that the uh, that the um, that the husband is actually dead? Or do we say we don't bother dealing with a chain of evidence? What we just have is a woman claiming that she knows that her husband is dead on the basis of evidence she finds sufficient. According to the Gemara, right, if we meet the two criteria, Shalom Benahem and Shalom Ba'olam, then we should believe her. Has anything, has anything happened to uh, change that? So Moshe first proves, not our issue, that the letter from the brother is sufficient on the general grounds of, of the uh, leniencies we impose in terms of evidence for a good note. And then he moves on to the question of whether we can believe the wife that the letter is authentic, that the letter is authentic, granting that if the letter is authentic, it's sufficient. Um, so Rav Hachmark's question apparently noted, again, we don't have the text of his question, um, but from Moshe's response, we can see that the Gemara, that he refers to a Gemara in several places, records that Rav Amnuna said that if a woman tells um, her as of now, presumptive husband, we're not actually married anymore because you divorced me, to, right, she tells it to his face, then we believe her because of a presumption that 
women don't have the chutzpah to tell people they're actually married to to their face that no, you divorced me. That kind of, that kind of bold faced lie is just too much. So the Ramah in Ebn Ezra Yudzayin Yud Gimel uh, cites and apparently approves an opinion that this is no longer true. That uh, that assumes certain kinds of relationships between men and women in society, which women wouldn't do that. And in his society, women are perfectly happy to make claims like that to men's faces, even men who to whom they had been previously married. Uh, so Rav Achmar apparently argued, look, we see that there are presumptions in the Gemara about the way in which human beings interact, which have legal effects, and those presumptions change, and when they, they're no longer valid in the given society, I'm not saying anything about the famous controversy about whether human nature changes, but the way in which human nature plays out in society changes according to everybody. There's no reasonable basis for a position claiming that the legal effects of uh, of, of human nature are unchanging in society, and the chazaka, that a chazaka reflects unchanging um, practical reality as opposed to, at most, you know, some kind of unchanging uh, internal psychological reality. So he says, look, if we change the if we change the presumption about whether women are willing to lie to their husbands' faces about divorce, why don't we change the presumption about whether uh, women will lie about whether their husbands are dead? And Rav Moshe says, in principle, you're right, but the two issues are not connected. Uh, the, reason, right, the reason that we no longer believe women uh, automatically when they state to their husband's face that they divorced them is that relationships between men and women in society have changed in a relevant way. And that change is not relevant um, to the question of death, which is not to your face, which is not about uh, relationships between, uh, between men and women. Ramosha never addresses, so far as I can tell in the tshuva, the question about what, other, what about the issues I raised about the whole society around us changing. And that's right left it when you want to figure out what the implications of this truva are. So why does he not, since he concedes that um, these sorts of presumptions are culturally, societally, historically contingent, so why does he never mention the specific reasons that they might that the presumption he's addressing uh, is uh, he's, the presumptions he's addressing are contingent? What Rabbi does say is, you know, we might treat this particular case. As a um, as specifically problematic because look the husband's been out of touch for twenty years, and no right and the claim isn't that he died twenty years ago, or at least there's no right we don't know what what the claim is right it's, it seems that we that the brother's letter said merely the husband is dead doesn't say uh, when the husband died, but it seems likely that um, that it's the husband's that the brother's writing now because the because the husband has died recently. So there's a long period of time when the husband clearly allowed his wife to go on being an aguna. So maybe that is the equivalent of demonstrating that there is not peace. There was not peace among the couple, right? That's a very, that's a very um, reasonable, reasonable argument. And Moshe's response to that is entirely technical. He says, "But look, the Gemara has only one case. The Gemara says that it's that extreme case where she claimed to his face that he divorced her in front of ex witnesses, and then the witnesses deny that this is not that case." But then he says, look, but there's a Ramah, um, right, the, uh, the Ramah says that uh, this probably also applies to a case which the husband converts out, or apostatizes, converts to a different religion. Then also, we, uh, right, we, don't, we, don't, we don't automatically do the woman's claim that he's dead because we have good, a good explanation for why he is neither married to her nor willing to divorce her. Um, so says, yeah, but I think the Ramah really means just those two cases. The Ramah doesn't mean by introducing a second case to say, oh, now in every case, the rabbis have to evaluate whether there's a plausible reason 
for the husband disappearing without uh, without divorce. It just means that if you have these two specific circumstances, cl- a claim uh, a claim of divorce that is falsified, or uh, or apostasy, then you don't believe the woman's claim that the husband is dead. In all other circumstances, Ramosha says we treat this as an ironclad rule that the woman is believed when she claims that her husband is uh, is dead. Okay. So now we get to the issue that is um, that is up to us, which is okay. So you can say we could believe the woman that her husband is dead the way Rav Moshe set it up, but should we believe the woman without doing something further to investigate? Let's call the let's see if we can find the brother. Let's send a let's send a messenger to the city where the brother said the husband is dead and see. Right? Let's let's try and verify this as opposed to simply accepting her claim. Um, so Rav Moshe notes that Pischei Tshuva. Um, Seventeen one fifty eight, um, reports uh, Truva Rabaz, and Rabaz said that if that if we call the woman a prutza, right, uh, whatever you want, however you want to translate it, right, somebody who is not not bound by proper sexual norms, um, so the Rabaz says that a woman who, who we classify as a prutza, who claims that her husband died in place X, should not be allowed to remarry until at least we've made a good faith effort to send right to find out to find confirming evidence in that place, right? So the Radbaz seems to modify the Gemara's claim and say, look, it's not that we don't believe her, but we have to at least try, right? Because maybe we'll send a message there, and, we'll, and the, the message, right, she says that the, that the husband died in Pinsk, so we'll send a message to Pinsk, and the husband and the, will come back saying the husband was alive and well, or the husband never was never here in the first place. So why should we take the risk, says the Radbaz, if the woman is a prutza, of believing her when we don't have to? We could just investigate further. Um, so let's do the same thing here, right? Let's say, oh, we're not disbelieving you, and if there's no evidence, if it turns out we can't find any evidence one way or the other, we'll believe you, but we're not going to let you remarry for, I don't know, a month, two months, uh, however long it takes to send messages back and forth, um, right? Why should we take that, why should we take that risk? Um, so Rav Moshe says that the Rabaz is not relevant, um, because... Rabaz is, ta- right, is talking about a woman who has done something specific to give her the reputation as a as a prutza. Um, in now, I'm not sure that Rabosha saw the Rabaz um, directly, as opposed to in the in the citation by uh, the Pischei Tshuva, which really just uses the term prutza. But in fact, if you read the Tshuva of Rabaz, it's hard to figure out exactly because it's a series. It's a, que- a series of questions posed as uh, you know, as uh, as um, adding conditions to hypothetical. But the most likely way of reading the Tshuva Rabaz, I can see it, is that in fact he's dealing with a case of really a quite extreme case where a woman made repeated false claims uh, that uh, that, her, that her husband uh, that, her hus- that her husband had divorced her. Um, and though they don't meet the specific criteria of the Gemara necessarily, but she made a lot of false claims to, right, in order to attempt to remarry, uh, when in fact, by all evidence, her husband was alive and she was still married. So Ramosha's claim uh, is very plausible in the original, that the Rabbaz uh, referred to women who had done something specific, and Ramosha says, okay, but he, you see, you can't say that we create a general presumption that we, right, that all women are princes. That he's not willing to do. So that's a big thing, right, because you might have said, that Prutza, the the um, the derogatory uh, description that you know that I understand Rav Moshe refusing to apply that uh, right to right to Jewish women, but the notion right if you don't use the if you don't use the more have a moral valence, be just say look in the women's concern for the halachic category of marriedness in a fundamentally secular society which doesn't recognize religious marriage as the ultimate bond, right, that you might claim that you, that you need women to be actively 
actively demonstrate their evidence, their interest in it. On the other hand, you might say, no, look, she's interested in this claim, right? She's coming to the rabbi. That prima facie proves that she is still interested in Jewish law. And Ramosha and says that unless you have a reason to believe explicitly that you have some, you have something positive to show that she should not be seen as taking halachic marriage seriously, then you have to, right, then nothing changes, and the Rabbaz is irrelevant, because the Rabbaz is talking about a woman who has done something particular, and as I say, if you look at the Rabbaz, something extreme particular, to damage her uh, her reputation. Okay. Then Ramosha adds something which I think is really very interesting. He says that, in this case, there's a really good reason not to wait, and the good reason not to wait is that um, it seems that the woman has some, the reason the woman is asking the question, or maybe not, or maybe as a result of the woman asking the question, is that there's a man who wants to marry her now, and you never know, that man, right, that man is impatient, and he might not be willing to uh, to marry her if he has to wait months until we until we engage in whatever investigation we deem, uh, we deem necessary. Um, so might have said, hmm, the fact that she wants to remarry immediately is evidence against her. Uh, and he might have said, uh, right, maybe she's not the one who cares about marriage at all. Maybe it's the groom who cares about the divorce, and so that undermines her credibility entirely. But he doesn't say that at all. In fact, what he says instead is, this is really an ego situation, because it's not only are we preventing her from theoretical remarriage, we're preventing her from actual remarriage. Um, and therefore, we cannot take the time to investigate if we have the legal capacity to allow her to remarry um, to remarry um, now. And, and again, he never mentions the question of whether communism changes the general presumption about women's relationship to um, relationship to halachic marriage. Um, and so it sounds like Rav Moshe is saying uh, in general, if we were to generalize the Shuvah, we would say that when halacha grants a party credibility, then the fact the fact that that uh, you could also obtain corroborating evidence is unnecessary at all. Right? Don't uh, right? Halacha grants credibility, and that is uh, that is sufficient. Or we could say that no, this is a very specific case uh, where either the, the broad consequences are too great of requiring further credibility because it undermines a fundament, you know the it undermines the whole notion that women are believed in terms of their husband's deaths, and that could have broad social consequences, or that Rav Moshe's sensitivity to the consequence of igun, even short-term igun, or especially igun um, related to a specific marriage, as opposed to, right where there's like where somebody wants to marry now, as opposed to um, the longer-term question of whether she'll ever find somebody to marry. Or Rav Moshe's sens- sensitivity to that issue is such that when requiring further evidence would have the consequence of preventing this woman from marrying the man whom, who wants to marry her, and presumably she wants to marry right now, that is considered a, a standard of ego insufficient, that even if, in a broader sense, we'll have to take a look at all those truths, but Rav Moshe uh, might think that, why not investigate if you have the opportunity? But here, he's not willing to, um, he's not willing to delay the woman's marriage at all. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.